0: Thank you for coming uh, to today's lecture. Let me begin by first thanking the many co-sponsors who have sponsored this event and supported the Third World Center in organizing this, Um, the South Asian Students' Association, the Coalition for Peace Action, the Ombuds' Office, and the International Center. And more notably, I'd like to thank the Woodrow Wilson School, the Projects Board, the Office of the Dean of Undergraduate Students, the Mamduha S. Bob Center for Peace and Justice of the Department of Politics, the Committee for South Asian Studies, and the Office of the Vice President. Mahatma Gandhi once said, We must be the change we wish to see. And it is in this spirit that we have invited Mr. Arun Gandhi to speak today with his talk entitled Terrorism, Nonviolence, and Justice. Presently, Where opinion seems to be uniform with regard to unfolding events, especially in the media, it is important to recognize the diverse perspectives in this different and difficult time. Arun Gandhi today survives the legacy of nonviolence championed by his grandfather, Mohandas K. Gandhi. Born in South Africa's apartheid, Arun endured bigoted attacks from European African youth for not being white and from Native Africans for not being black. This served to increase the anger that Arun Gandhi bore as a young man. Hoping that time with his grandfather would help the 12-year-old Arun control his rage and deal with prejudice through nonviolent means, his parents took him to India to live with his grandfather. For 18 months, while Gandhi imparted lessons to his grandson, the young man was also witnessing world history unfold before his eyes. This combination set Arun on a course for life. At 23, Arun returned to India and worked as a journalist and reporter for the Times of India. He, his wife Suneda, and several colleagues started the successful economic initiative, India's Center for Social Unity, whose mission is to alleviate poverty and caste discrimination. The center's success has now spread to over 300 villages improving the lives of more than 500,000 rural Indians. Having written eight books and hundreds of articles, Dr. Gandhi is also an accomplished author and journalist. He published The Suburban Echo, a weekly in Bombay from 1985 through 1987. Arun envisioned and edited World Without Violence, Can Gandhi's Dream Become Reality? A collection of essays and poetry from noted international scientists, artists, and political and social leaders on the ideals of nonviolence. This popular volume was published in October 1994 for the celebration of the 125th anniversary of Gandhiji's birth. Arun and his wife, Sunanda, came to the United States in 1987. In October of 1991, the Gandhis founded the MK Institute for Nonviolence. Its mission is to examine, promote, and apply the principles of nonviolence thought and action through research, workshops, seminars, and community service. The Institute is located at Christian Brothers University in Memphis, Tennessee, where Arun is also a scholar in residence. In addition to lecturing worldwide at colleges and institutes and addressing community and professional organizations, Arun is active in community, educational, corporate, and prison programs, workshops, and conferences. It is my distinct pleasure to present to you Mr. Arun Gandhi.
1: Thank you very much. It's a great pleasure to be here tonight and to be able to speak to you about terrorism, nonviolence, and justice. The uh, title itself suggests that this lecture should be divided into three groups, terrorism, nonviolence, and justice, and that's how I'm going to deal with it. Except that I'm going to change the order a little bit. I'll talk about terrorism and justice and nonviolence. Terrorism is nothing but violence. We have categorized violence into various categories depending upon the intensity of, of the violence. But I think that uh, a man who um, Breaks into your home, for instance, is a terrorist. Somebody who uh, attempts to rape is a terrorist. Somebody who indulges in violence in the streets, they are terrorists. Gangs are terrorists. These are all acts of terrorism, all acts of violence. If it happens to just one or two or ten people, it's no less evil than when it happens to a thousand people. It's the same, except that the intensity is greater when it happens to more people and we take note of it. But we need to look at all of these acts of violence and see where do they come from. What is at the root of all this violence? And I think the basic ingredient in all of this is poverty. It is poverty and destitution at the, at the very base of, of uh, the, um, the anger of the people. And then added to that are many other ingredients over the years. And they all just add up to make a hot mix of violence. And then we have terrorism. There. Grandfather used to say... And I'd like to quote him that the seven sins that he called which contribute to violence in our world are wealth without work, pleasure without conscience, knowledge without character, commerce without morality, Science without humanity, worship without sacrifice, and politics without principles. And more recently, I added the eighth one to this list, and that is rights without responsibilities. Now, these are the issues in society that uh, generate a lot of violence uh, among people. And uh, we can see... All of these in uh, isolation or we can see them all in, in, in combination and, and the evil that they do in, in our societies. I said to you that poverty is one of the ingredients that causes violence in in the world. I lived for 30 years in in India where there is tremendous amount of poverty there. And I lived over a period of 30 years that uh, span the 50 years since independence. And I saw for myself that the uh, life in the country was so much more peaceful, although poverty was there, but it was so much more peaceful Because in the early years, poverty was not as uh, rampant. It was not, the disparities were not as great as they have become now. And the greater the disparity between the rich and the poor, the greater the um, violence that the poor people express now we see more and more of this violence growing in the country. And this is true not only of India, but it's true of all the countries uh, in the world, where there is tremendous disparities between the rich and the poor. To show you how much disparity exists, not only within the country, but within the world, I'd like to share with you a few statistics. For instance, to buy a loaf of bread in the United States, a person works for six minutes. In a third world country, a person has to work for 20 hours. To buy a quart of milk in the United States, a person works for nine minutes. In a third world country, for 25 hours. To buy a cotton dress, an American woman would have to work for four hours. In a third-world country, a woman would have to work for 4,500 hours. To buy a suit of clothes, an American man would work for 38 hours. In a third-world country, one would work for 11,660 hours. In the United States, we spend $8 billion every year on cosmetics which is enough to give every child in the world basic education. 14 million children in the United States live in poverty, while 60 of the richest Americans hold assets worth $311 billion, enough to send all of the U.S. children in poverty to college. In the United States, we spend one billion dollars every year on buying ice cream, which is enough to provide clean water and sanitation to all the people in the third world countries. So when we have this kind of a disparity, when people see overconsumption on one side and, and lack of basic amenities on the other side, they become angry. and and resort to violence. And that's why we are seeing so much of terrorism and and violence and and unhappiness growing in the world today. How do we combat this? What do we do about it? Grandfather said the only way we can bring about peace and justice in the world is through nonviolence. President Kennedy during his presidency, once said, and I'm going to paraphrase his uh, statement since I don't remember the exact words, but he said, unless we destroy violence, violence will destroy us. But what does that mean? Can we destroy violence? And how do we destroy violence? It's somewhat like the same statement that uh, President Bush made recently when he said we are going to wage a war on terrorism. Now, how do we identify terrorists and how do we wage a war against them? People don't go around wearing a badge saying that I am a terrorist. And terrorists exist everywhere, in every society, in every neighborhood, in every corner of the world So how do we wage a war against terrorists and how do we wage a war against violence when violence exists everywhere? So if we seek justice, justice in grandfather's sense and in the true non-violent sense does not mean revenge. Justice means reformation. Justice means that we recognize that the person who has done something wrong has made a mistake, and that person needs help to overcome that mistake. And we need to be able to reform them. Prisons should not be places of punishment. Prisons should be places where people are helped to get education, to become better human beings. They are helped not only through education, but through psychological and psychiatric help. I have been writing to uh, or visiting several prisons um, in the country here, and the first question I ask all of them is, do you have any psychiatric help or psychological help for the prisoners? And I've always been told, yes, they they do have them on, on the staff. But he says, we don't intervene until they do something crazy. <laughs> and I said, well, what more do you want them to do? They have already did something crazy to come into the prison. <laughs> <laughs> How much more you want them to be crazy before you intervene to help them? But that's, you know, the, the point that we need to look at. The fact that these people have come into prison indicates that they have done something crazy. They do need psychological and psychiatric help. People should intervene at that point and from there give them education so that they come out better human beings. Instead, what do we do? We have the best gymnasia in prisons. We have the best law libraries in prisons. So these prisoners spend half their day in the gymnasia pumping iron so that they can become strong and and, uh, healthy. And the other half of the day they spend in the law library finding loopholes when they come out of the prisons to deal with. And these are negative things because our concept of justice is that we want to punish them. We just want to lock them up and throw the keys away. This is what politicians tell us. But locking them up and throwing the keys away is not going to help anybody. We see now that it hasn't helped anybody at all. We are spending so much more on building prisons to lock people up and... We have not stopped to think of how many people are we going to lock up and where is this going to end. So we've got to be able to take a more pragmatic view of this whole situation to see how best we can handle violence and crime and and all of these negative things that are going on in our society. All of this is rebellion. Because some people are being left out, they are being marginalized, and they don't know how to catch up with society and how to be one with society. And that is what nonviolence teaches us. Nonviolence is not the opposite of violence. Nonviolence is a very powerful force. It's about love, respect, and compassion. And this is what grandfather said, that all of us have love, respect, and compassion within us. Some of us suppress it and don't want to show it, and some of us do. But if all of us let this flourish, we would be able to create a much more peaceful and compassionate society. I learned about how... Vast and how great this philosophy of nonviolence is! Through a little pencil, a little pencil, a three-inch butt of a pencil became the major subject for a lesson in nonviolence. When I was growing up uh, with grandfather, I was with living with him between the ages of twelve and fourteen, and uh, we were living in the city of Pune in India. And I was going for my private tuitions, and one evening when I was coming back from the tuitions, I was about 12 years old then, and I looked at this pencil in my hand, it was about three inches long, and I said to myself, I deserve a better pencil, this is too small for me to use. And so I threw it away, because I was so sure that grandfather would give me a new pencil when I asked him for one. But instead, when, that evening when I asked him for a new pencil, instead of giving me one, he subjected me to a lot of questions. He wanted to know how the pencil became small and why did it become small and where did I throw it away and on and on and on. And I couldn't understand why he was making such a fuss over a little pencil until he told me to go out and look for it. And I said, you must be kidding. I said, you don't expect me to look for this pencil in the dark? He said, oh, yes, I do. Here's a flashlight. (laughs) And he sent me out with a flashlight and I must have spent about two or three hours searching the bushes for it. And when I finally found it and brought it to him, he said, now I want you to sit here and learn two very important lessons. The first lesson is that even in the making of a simple thing like a pencil, we use a lot of the world's natural resources. And when we throw them away, we are throwing away the world's natural resources, and that is violence against nature. The second lesson is that because in an affluent society we can afford to buy all these things in bulk, we overconsume the resources of the world, And because we overconsume them, we are depriving people elsewhere of these resources, and they have to live in poverty, and that is violence against humanity. And that was the first time I realized how much violence each one of us contributes. All these little things that we do every day, consciously and unconsciously, are acts of violence. So we are contributing to violence all the time. I mean, in many, many different ways, in many unconscious ways. Um, this morning we were at the airport in uh, in Memphis, and somebody dropped coke in the line, uh, in the security line there, and so there were all these sticky patches all over there, and they called the. Uh, janitorial staff to come and clean up there now instead of mopping it with a mop and, and uh, going she used up a whole big fat roll of paper to mop up that uh, that the, the spots of co- uh, coke and I kept thinking to myself how many trees are gone just because of this one paper and that was not a unique experience. All of us do this. Every time we go to the bathroom, we wash our hands and we want paper to wipe our hands on. And yet we could carry a hanky and wipe it on this. But we don't want to do this because this needs to be washed every day. And who's going to increase the laundry? It's easier to use paper and, and throw the paper away so if we profess concern for ecology and environment then we should you, I, we should display that concern in our life in the in our attitudes i mean it's no use showing concern on one side and and being over consumptive on the other side and and destroying so much of uh, Paper and, and and all of these things uh, that that uh, destroy ecology in itself there, so we have to be more conscious of what we do and how we behave there. That is what nonviolence teaches us. Grandfather made me draw a family tree of violence. He said the only way you can understand nonviolence is by first understanding violence itself. And it was on the same principles as a genealogical tree with violence as the grandparent and physical violence and passive violence as the two offsprings. And every day before I went to bed... I had to analyze my day's experiences, everything that I may have read or seen or or experienced or done to other people, all of that had to be analyzed and put in their appropriate places on the tree. And he made me do this so that I could uh, do some self-introspection, that I would be able to see how much violence I contribute every day to life. And within a year I was able to fill up a whole wall in my room with acts of passive violence. Now, physical violence is something that we can understand because it's all the type of violence where we use physical force against one another. All the wars and killings and beatings and murders and rapes and crime and and all of these things where we use physical force. But passive violence is something that we can ignore because it's all the type of violence where we don't use any physical force, but we are still violent and we are hurtful towards others. It's all the oppression, suppression, economic, political, social, cultural, religious, the hate, the prejudices, the name-calling, the teasing, the hundreds of things that we do every day that hurt people directly or indirectly. And the connection between the two, grandfather said, was that we do this passive violence all the time, and that hurts the victim, and the victim becomes angry and then explodes into physical violence. So it is passive violence that fuels the fire of physical violence. Logically, if we want to put out the fire of physical violence, we have to cut off the fuel supply. And the fuel supply comes from each one of us. So unless we become the change we wish to see in the world, we can't really bring peace. Another thing that contributes to violence in the world, very substantially I would say, is anger. We become angry and we lash out either verbally or physically. Some of us have the tendency to keep our anger to ourselves. Some of us carry it superficially. Some of us carry anger subconsciously, internally. Some of us act out our anger physically. Some of us don't. Now, there are all these different ways in which we handle our anger. But none of them are positive ways. Our grandfather went to South Africa as a young lawyer. He went there specifically to make money to be able to pay back the loan that his family had taken for his education. He had absolutely no idea of becoming a leader, a world leader and and, uh, professing non-violence. His only motive was to make money and pay back the loans and then support his family. But within a week of his arrival in South Africa, he became a victim of uh, prejudice, and he was physically thrown off the train by some white people because they didn't want to travel with this black person in the same compartment. And grandfather says that... Incident was so humiliating that he wanted justice and he sat on the railway platform all night wondering how to get justice his first reaction was one of anger he was so angry by that humiliating experience that he wanted to lash out in violence, anger leads to violence And so he wanted to lash out violently towards the oppressors. But he stopped himself and said, that's not right. I can't go on beating up all the white people because of the acts of a few. The next thought that came into his mind was to leave South Africa and go back to India. And he said, that's not right either, because that's running away from a problem and not facing it. And that's when the third option dawned on him, and that was seeking justice through nonviolent action. Now, he had the presence of mind to wait and think and, and then act. But most of us would just immediately flare up and, and lash out there. This is what I was going to do, and I was growing up in south africa and i uh, was beaten up by some white youths at the age of 10 because they thought i was too black and then a few months later i was beaten up by some black youths because they thought i was too white for the whites i was too black and for the blacks i was too white and it was such a humiliating experience that i wanted eye for an eye justice I wanted to be able to grow up and beat up all these people who messed around with me. And it became such an obsession with me that I subscribed to Charles Atlas's exercise programs, so that I could build muscles and deal with these people. And that's when my parents took me to India. <laughs> and the first lesson that I learned from grandfather was understanding anger and using that anger positively. He said anger is a wonderful thing, there's nothing to be ashamed of. It's a very powerful emotion, it's a wonderful emotion, but only if we use it intelligently and respectfully. But it can be very destructive and deadly if we abuse it. He used the analogy of electricity. He says it's just like electricity. It's just as useful and just as powerful, only if it is used intelligently, but it's just as destructive and deadly if we abuse it. So just as we channel electricity intelligently and bring it into our homes and into our lives and use electricity for all the good things that we use it for, we must learn to channel anger in the same way so that we can use that anger positively rather than destructively. He suggested that I should write an anger journal. He said every time you feel anger coming up for whatever reason, don't pour it out on somebody or something, but pour it all out in your journal. But write the journal with the intention of finding a solution to the problem, and then commit yourself to finding a solution. Lots of young people have told me today that they've been writing an anger journal for a long time, but it hasn't really helped them, because every time they go back and read the journal, they are reminded of the incident. <laughs> so. That is because they poured their anger out into the journal, and that, that hasn't helped. It helped them to get it out of their system, but it didn't help them to find a solution to the problem. So when we do that and when we go out and face the problem again, we become angry all over again and it just goes on in cycle until we get fed up and, and instead of pouring it in the, into the um, journal, we beat up on each other. So it's very important that we write the journal with the intention of finding a solution and then commit ourselves to finding a solution to the problem there. Now after learning this profound lesson from grandfather, I decided to test him and see whether he had learned the lesson himself. Now, this was the period in his life when he was involved in many things, not only the freedom uh, struggle against the British, but he was also concerned about the emancipation of women, the emancipation of the so-called untouchable people, the education of children, all of these things uh, were uppermost in his mind, and he had programs going on for all of these uh, projects. And so uh, he needed funds for these projects. He realized that the easiest way for him to raise money for these projects was by selling his autograph. And so he put a fee of $5 for each autograph, and I had to go out into the audience every morning and evening after the prayer services, and collect the autograph books and the money and bring it to him for his signature. And one day I thought to myself, I said, if everybody could get his autograph, why not me? After all, I'm his grandson and I deserve an autograph too. And so I got myself a little autograph book and I slipped it into the pile one day and I took it to him, hoping that he would not notice the absence of money there. But he was very shrewd and he, when he came to that book, he said, why is there no money for this autograph? And I said, because it's my book. And he said, well, you should know that I don't make an exception even for grandsons. That if you want an autograph, you will not only have to pay me for it, but you'll have to earn the money and pay me. Don't ask your parents for it. And I said, no way. I said, you're my grandfather, and I'm going to make you give me this autograph for you. (laughs) And he laughed and said, all right, let's see who wins. (laughs) And from that day, every day for several weeks, when he was in high-level political discussions with Indian politicians and British politicians, I would barge into the room with my autograph book, (laughs) and thrust it in his face and demand an autograph. (laughs) My logic was that just to get rid of me, he would sign the book and give it to me. But instead, every time I became too boisterous, all he did was put his hands across my mouth, press my head against his chest and went on talking politics. (laughs) I don't remember his ever getting angry with me and telling me to get out of the room and leave him alone like we would do when our children walked into the room while we were working on some important project, we would shoo them out and say, get out, leave me alone, we'll talk about it later. Can't you see I'm busy just now? He never, ever did that to me, and he never, ever gave me the autograph. (laughs) And that's when I realized that if he was able to control his anger to that extent, If we could control, achieve 50% of that result, I think we would be able to achieve a tremendous uh, reduction in violence in our societies. And that's not impossible to do. It just needs commitment, a daily commitment to be able to channel that anger into positive action rather than abusing that anger. There are many profound lessons that I learned from grandfather during that period. There are a few that I want to share with you, which relate to parenting. I've been often asked by people, how do you use nonviolence at home? How do you use it with children? And I think... We need to understand this and and be able to practice this at home because a lot depends on what we teach our children. If we give them violent instruction, they're going to become violent people as adults. But if we give them nonviolent instruction, they're going to grow up to become nonviolent people. And we don't often do this. We often use our parental authority to make the children do what we want them to do while they see us doing just the opposite. And so they get these mixed uh, messages and they reject both of them. So we have to live what we want our children to learn. That's the best way of teaching children. The first story happened in 1940 when I was six years old and we were visiting India and living with grandfather in his ashram and there was another couple there that had a six-year-old boy and we got on very famously and we played together and, and all that but he had a tremendous sweet tooth. I mean, he just could not resist sweets. He had to have some kind of candy or chocolate or, or dessert or some sweets he had to have all the time, every day. If he couldn't get any of those, he would take spoonsful of sugar and eat it. <laughs> and the result was that he started getting a rash all over his body. And uh, his parents took him to the doctor. And the doctor said, you've got to stop giving him sugar cut off sugar altogether until he's cured, and then give him um, moderate amounts of sweets. So the parents came home, and from that day, every day they would nag him and say, you are not going to get any sweets. The doctor has said no, and yet they would have sweets on the table, desserts on the table, and everybody else would be partaking of it. And this boy didn't obey his parents, and when nobody was looking, he would grab some and eat it and he couldn't be cured. So one day his mother brought the boy to grandfather and pleaded with grandfather and said will you please explain to this boy he won't listen to us, maybe he will listen to you. And grandfather said you come back after 15 days and I'll speak to him. She went away, she was puzzled, she couldn't understand why grandfather couldn't speak to him now, why did she have to come back after 15 days But she came back after fifteen days, and grandfather took this boy aside and spoke to him for less than a minute. And the boy went home and gave up sweets, wouldn't touch sweets anymore. And the parents were aghast. They said, What kind of a miracle did you perform? They came to ask grandfather, and grandfather said, It wasn't a miracle. He said, the reason I asked you to come back after 15 days was I had to give up eating sweets before I could ask him to give up. And all I've told him is that I've given up sweets and I won't eat sweets until you are allowed to eat sweets. So will you please give it up? Now this is what the parents were not doing. They were using their authority, but they were not willing to make that sacrifice for their little boy. and and show their concern for him. And that is what we need to do. I remember when we were growing up, we never had punishment at home when we did something wrong. We We were never punished. Our parents did penance for our wrong. They sometimes fasted the whole day or sometimes skipped one meal Or sometimes in other ways they did penance. And they explained to us why they were doing this. And that opened our eyes to the wrongs that we did. And because we had a very good relationship with our parents, we didn't want them to suffer. And so we stopped ourselves from doing things. So the the difference between punishment and penance is a very um, vast difference. When we punish people for their wrongdoing, they just suffer the punishment and come out and do the same thing over and, and over again. Whether it's a criminal in the street or whether it's your own child at home, punishment doesn't teach anybody anything. It's penance that really teaches and opens their eyes to it. I was 16 years old and we had just come back from India. We were living in this uh, ashram, community ashram that grandfather had started in Phoenix, South Africa, which was 18 miles outside the city of Durban in the midst of sugarcane plantations. All around us were uh, sugarcane plantations. Our nearest neighbors were about two miles away from us. And so when my two sisters and I were growing up, we didn't have anybody our age to play with. So we would uh, look forward to going to town and visiting friends and seeing a movie or something. And one Saturday I got that opportunity. When... My father had to go to town to attend a conference and he didn't feel like driving that day. And he asked me if I would drive him into town and I said, yes, jumped at the opportunity. And since I was going into town, my mother gave me a list of groceries that she needed. And on the way into town, my father reminded me of all the little chores that had been pending for a long time like getting the car serviced and oil changed and all that. And he said, since you have the whole day to yourself, please take care of all these chores. And I said, all right. And when I dropped him off at the conference venue, he said, at five o'clock in the evening, I will wait for you outside this auditorium. You come here and pick me up and we'll go home together. And I said, fine. Fine. And I rushed off and I did all my chores and I bought all the groceries and everything and left the car in the garage with instructions to do whatever was necessary. And I made a beeline for the nearest movie theater. And I got so engrossed in a John Wayne double feature (laughs) that I didn't realize the passage of time. The movie ended at 5.30. And I ran from the theater to the garage and got the car and rushed to where my father was waiting for me. It was almost six o'clock when I reached there. And he was naturally anxious and wondering what happened to me and he was pacing up and down. And the first question he asked me is, why are you late? And instead of telling him the truth, I was so ashamed to tell him that I was sitting there watching a John Wayne double feature that I lied to him and I said the car wasn't ready, I had to wait for the car, not realizing that he had already called the garage and asked them. (laughs) When he caught me in the lie, he said, there's something wrong in the way I brought you up that didn't give you the confidence to tell me the truth, that you felt you had to lie to me. And I've got to find out where I went wrong with you. And in order to do that, he said, I'm going to walk home 18 miles. I'm not coming with you in the car. There was absolutely nothing I could do to make him change his mind. He just started walking. He was dressed in a suit and tie and dress shoes and he didn't even wait to take off his coat or tie or anything. He just started walking. It was after six o'clock in the evening. I realized that much of those 18 miles were through sugarcane plantations, dirt roads, late in the night. I couldn't leave him and go away. So for five and a half hours I was crawling behind him watching my father go through this agony for a stupid lie that I uttered. And I decided there and then that I was never going to lie again. Now that was a very powerful lesson in nonviolent parenting. Because had he punished me like we punish our children when we catch them doing something wrong, I don't think I would have learned the lesson that he was trying to teach me. I think I would have done just the contrary. I would have gone on doing the same thing over and over again. But by this action, he was able to teach me such a powerful lesson that it's 50 years since the incident, but to me it is still as fresh as though it happened yesterday. Now that is the power of nonviolence. But that also means... That non-violence depends on positive relationships. It's a very important factor. Today our relationships in society, whether in society or at home, are very nebulous. It's practically worthless relationships because they break off so easily. Because our relationships today are based on negative principles, selfish interests, self-centeredness. We are always looking at what am I going to gain from the relationship, and if I don't gain anything from it, why should I have a relationship? Now that's a very negative way of building relationships, and that's why we can break them off so easily today. But if relationships are based on the four principles of respect, Understanding, acceptance and appreciation The four positive principles Then they would be solid relationships And that means that we respect ourselves and respect each other And respect our connection with all of creation Which is very important because a lot of us seem to think that we are independent individuals And we can do whatever we like and it's nobody's business And nobody is independent. We are all interdependent and interrelated and interlinked, not only as human beings, but human beings with nature. And unless we appreciate that and accept that and respect that, we will not understand who we are and what we are and why are we here on earth. And it's only then that we will be able to look at each other as human beings and not... uh, identify people by the labels that we have put upon ourselves. Today we have so many labels to identify us, ourselves. We have religious labels, economic labels, social labels, gender labels, cultural labels, you name it and we have a label for it. And every label that we put upon ourselves is a label that divides us and every division that we make is a conflict. And every conflict ultimately leads to violence. So it's very important that we learn to build these relationships on a sound footing, on positive principles rather than selfish and self-centered principles. Which means that we have to do the right thing for the, right, for the people. We need to show compassion and understanding and, and sharing and love for the people so that we can create that kind of a society where there wouldn't be so much strife. It may mean that we have to give, give up some of the luxuries that we have become accustomed to so that other people can get the essentials that they need. And that is what Grandfather tried to awaken in us. That if we are able to look at other people and do things which are not just right for us, but which are right for uh, for people and for the society, and which will do good for the rest of us. When we have that concept in our mind, then we would be able to reduce the level of violence and create a peaceful world. So we need to understand violence in its... Uh, total concept not just violence as the opposite of I'm sorry not just non-violence as the opposite of violence but as a, a total philosophy of life and it's when we do that that we would be able to reduce violence and we would not have terrorism that strikes at us thank you
0: Thank you very much for your presentation. Um, We will now have um, a short uh, period of question and answer, Um, and you can ask a question by raising your hand, and I'll just point to you. And speak up, please.
1: When one is Nothing. outside the country. Yeah.
0: See, when your, your grandfather, in South Africa, he participated, he started the civil disobedience hmm. to address the injustice. Suppose he was not in South Africa, he was in India, and he wanted to address the injustice in South Africa. What could he do?
1: Now, you can't live in one country and address the injustice in another country. You have to address the injustice within your the sphere where you are living. You may draw the attention of people to what is happening in another country and and try to educate people about it and, and create that awareness. But directly you cannot address the injustice uh, in another country when you are not living there. That makes it uh, difficult to do. But it's not possible. There's
0: no way of expressing
1: the issue. Well, I wouldn't say there is no way, but there is a way of awareness. If we bring about awareness in the world, then the world can do something about it. But individually, no. Individually, we can't do it.
0: Quicker, faster
1: easier way out well that's a good question uh, I don't know I suppose it is uh, um, just uh, you know generations of being aware you know his uh, my grandfather's father and his father and and grandfather they were all um, people in power they were prime ministers and and uh, people who were controlling large states, but they were also very um, uh, honest and sincere and and very uh, compassionate people. Um, why they were that way, I don't know. I mean we've looked back about seven or eight generations, and we can't really find out why that that happened. but I think that was just there, and it it, it just came out and and they you know, let it flourish. Um, I would say that it's probably, uh, you know, as I said earlier, that we do have the positive ideas and principles within us and we have the negative. Each one of us has that within us. That is the uh, Indian uh, belief. That each one has the good and the bad, the positive and the negative within ourselves. And it all depends on the individual which of these he or she allows to flourish. And I guess for some reason in in uh, my family, in several generations, they've allowed the positive to flourish over the negative and, and so the positive principles have come out there. That's the best answer I can give. Well, I can answer that question in two ways. Um, one is that he would have ensured, if he was still alive today, he would have ensured that we, um, we don't go to that extent that uh, leads to September 11th. You know, today, unfortunately, we tend to look at September 11th in isolation. It was a horrible incident that took place there. But what we don't look at is that it it wasn't that these 15, 18 people decided on that day uh, when they woke up that today we are just going to go berserk and we are going to hijack planes and smash the World Trade Center. It was a cumulative effect of several decades of oppression that finally led to these people doing such a horrible thing there. So when we talk about September 11th, we have to also look at the, you know, several decades of of, uh, our wrong policies, Uh, our policies that have been based so heavily on our need for oil. And, um everything that we do in that part of the world has been always dependent on our oil needs there and so we have been willing to uh, forego our principles and our ethics and um, and and that's been a very devastating situation, and that has added to what happened on September eleventh so if grandfather was alive, he would probably have um, helped us realize this and helped stop that kind of thing from happening uh, and ultimately leading to September 11th. But on the other hand, let's assume that if it did happen during his lifetime, how would he handle it? I think he would have um, agreed in uh, in, um, the fact that we need to um, arrest and contain the Al-Qaeda, and bin Laden. But he would not suggest that the United States take unilateral action. He would have suggested, I believe, that the United States take this matter to the United Nations and ask the United Nations to get involved in this thing because terrorism is a world problem and all of us need to get involved in finding a solution to it. And if that had happened, um, the whole world would be involved in this, and it would be a battle between the terrorists and the world. Today, because the United States and Britain took the unilateral action there, it has turned out to be a battle between Christians and the uh, Islamic countries. And that need not have happened at all. So if they had gone to the United Nations and if they had gotten a United Nations force to go into Afghanistan by road, not by air, but go there by road and take food for the hungry people in in Afghanistan and feed the people there, not just airdrop some military rations, but take rice and lentils and and the type of food that the Afghani people are uh, uh, accustomed to eating and feed the hungry people there, we would have been able to isolate the Taliban and the Al-Qaeda and ultimately uh, gotten them to surrender
0: in confronting it in the larger
1: world the next step is that we need to to change people around us people with whom we have an influence uh, maybe our children or or our siblings or family members or friends or wherever we begin to practice it and and uh, help them understand and and share and change the, and that's how the ripple effect would uh, bring about a change in the whole society. I like to give the example of uh, all these great men like Jesus and Muhammad and Buddha and and all of these people who came here and uh, they didn't wait to see uh, what impact uh, their sermons were going to have or whether anybody was going to listen to them or not. They just knew that it was the right thing to do and they went out and did it. And look at the impact it has made. Today millions and millions of people around the world have become their followers. So we should not get fixed on the goal, ultimate goal. We just need to do what we need to do. And if our means are right, the end will definitely be right.
0: has been used to create divisions between people, Mm -hmm. the followers of Muhammad, the followers of Christ, the followers of Buddha, it seems like that's almost, it's against what they were all teaching. How do you recommend we go beyond those divisions that have been created by kind of looking at these as separate, as very different paths? It seems like they're all looking at the same thing. They're all looking for love and peace. How do we deal with those divisions that have been created religion?
1: Well, I think we have created the division and we can um, destroy them. Um, you know, grandfather, when he realized that uh, religion has become very divisive and and uh, creating a lot of violence in, in societies and India being such a multi-religious, multicultural uh, country, we have Christians and Buddhists and, and uh, Hindus and Muslims and all of these people living together there. He realized that he has got to do something to bring about oneness among the people there. So uh, he practiced it. He told everybody that a friendly study of all the scriptures is the sacred duty of every individual. And he emphasized the word friendly. Critical studies have been made uh, by many people. But friendly studies have not. And if we make that kind of a friendly study, we will find that there is a lot of common ground between all the religions. They are all based on the same positive principles of love, understanding, compassion and respect for each other. And if once we come to that understanding, then we can um, incorporate into our own lives uh, the good things from other religions. He did this in his prayer services every morning and evening. Uh, He held them outside in the open or uh, uh, on a bad day in a hall like this where there were no religious symbols of any kind to threaten anybody. And uh, everybody who came there would sing hymns from Christianity, from Islam, from Buddhism, from Hinduism, all the different religions. And... Hindus, Muslims, Christians just walked in and participated in the prayer. So he brought about that kind of understanding and and respect for each other and uh, through his practice. And I think that's one reason why, in spite of India being divided uh, at the time of independence into uh, Pakistan for the Muslims, that only one-third of the Muslims decided to go to Pakistan. Two-thirds of the Muslims continued to live in India because they felt comfortable living there. They didn't feel that they needed to leave and go away. So when we practice that every day, and, you know, we can uh, bring about that understanding.
0: Yes. yeah.
1: Well, first of all, if there is an immediate threat, um, then we have to take some immediate action to, to diffuse the threat. For instance, if um, somebody is threatening with a gun or threatening with violence in the streets there, then you need to use some violence in the immediate um, moment to uh, save the person. But then there are two things that we need to remember. One is that we don't use excessive violence to destroy the other person. And secondly, we try to find out why is that person uh, threatening us and, and what's wrong with him and how best can we find a solution to this problem. There's a very interesting incident that I read about, Um, and it's a true story of a young woman who uh, lived in a Boston suburb. And uh, it was a very safe suburb, and um, everybody kept their windows open and and slept there. And so she uh, she was in a little apartment, and she kept her window open. And in the middle of the night one day, she found a stranger in her room trying to get onto her bed. And she got up, you know, startled with this. And normally in that situation, anybody would have screamed for help. But instead, she kept her cool. And she just turned around and asked this person, says, hasn't your mother taught you that you don't get into people's bed with your shoes on? (laughs) And that so completely floored this guy. (laughs) That they ended up sitting for the next one hour and talking, and she convinced him that what he was about to do, what he had come there to do, was wrong, and that if he promised that he wouldn't do it again, he would let her let him out the front door, and that's what she did. He promised that uh, he wouldn't do it again, and she let him out. So that is a way of doing it. I wouldn't recommend it at all times. <laughs> We'll take a couple more questions. There's a question. When you were talking about positive relationships, you were talking about four things. Yes, respect, understanding, acceptance, and appreciation.
0: consider that a punishment and an act of violence. And my question is, is violence only something that one can impose on another or can one impose violence on themselves? And if violence can be imposed on yourself, by yourself, is that an
1: acceptable form of violence? Or
0: how would you... No,
1: I don't think violence... uh, I I think what you mean is non-violence can be imposed on others. Violence is always imposed on others. You do violence to others or to yourself, and, and that's whether you do it to yourself or you do it to others, violence is bad. So is your question about nonviolence or about violence? It's about violence, and if you impose
0: violence on yourself, is that acceptable?
1: No, I don't think that is violence. What my father did was not imposing violence on himself. He decided to do penance. And, well, some people may look at penance as a form of violence too, but uh, that is actually self-suffering.
0: Thank you very much, uh, Haroon, and that's the time we have today. Thank you once again.
1: Thank Thank you.